What's up gamers and welcome to Lost at Sea Gaming. I am Hulking Yoda, the captain of this ship, the SS Gamer. And you have just stepped into my captain's quarters, my weekly gaming update show where I talk about my favorite gaming news topic of the past week, discuss what games I've been playing, give tips on some of those games, as well as issue a weekly relevant gaming related decree. This week, take a trip with me down memory lane as I look back at the history of E3 through my eyes. So let's talk about it and dive right into the episode with my news catch of the week. Gamers, I've been playing and enjoying video games for, honestly, as far back as I can remember. From when I was probably no more than three or four years old, sitting in my dad's lap, playing a Commodore 64, up until now where I'm playing a PS5 and a Series X and a Nintendo Switch and experiencing all the things that come with the new generation of consoles year after year, I love and have loved video games. And part of that love was accentuated back in 1998 when I got my original PlayStation for the first time. And then when as I go into the year of 1999, I become very much attached to and obsessed with a magazine that I very quickly <laughs> obtained a subscription to. And that magazine was PSM, 100% unbiased, unofficial PlayStation magazine. And I always liked that magazine more than I did the official PlayStation magazine, even though it did not come with a demo disc like that official US PlayStation mag did. I always enjoyed the fact that PSM had comic book artists creating its covers and doing their renditions of games that were coming out, as well as just the coverage. I thought the people were more real and their views and opinions, I just felt they were exactly what the magazine claimed to be, which was unbiased. Well, it was through my enjoyment of this magazine over the first months of 1999 that I discovered the existence of the Electronic Entertainment Expo or better known as E3. And for me, this is something that I had never known existed before, had no idea what it was or the impact it would have on me and my gaming career over the decades to come. And of course, it was in a magazine, so it was just kind of talking about this, this expo, this convention that was coming in June of that year. And how typically every year it highlights the biggest gaming news announcements that you're going to get all year long right there in one place at this E3. And I got really hyped for it. I was excited because I was really just kind of coming into my own, in my opinion, as really what kind of led me to be the gamer that I am today. Because PlayStation, just that generation, really shaped me into what I would ultimately become as a gamer. Between RPGs like Final Fantasy, stealth action games like Metal Gear Solid, survival horror games like Resident Evil and Silent Hill, all these different genres and games, they all help shape who I am as a gamer now today. Well, to find out that this is essentially looked at as the Super Bowl for gamers the biggest event of the year, this E3, I was excited for it. So not to go into every little detail of every year since then, as far as E3 and its existence, but from then on, I mean, that became a major deal for me. And I felt like I was part of a special group that had something that they look forward to every year 
that was just as exciting for us as the Super Bowl was for football fans or for movie and commercial fans looking to see what the next biggest pop culture thing was going to be coming out of those commercials during the Super Bowl. But as my love for gaming continued to just grow and grow and expand, man, that excitement and hype and expectation level for E3 continued to grow year over year over year. And when ultimately it came time for E3 to start to evolve and different ways for me to consume E3, man, it just kept getting better, it seemed like. Because obviously, going from 1999 and the years ahead, I would very rapidly migrate from print media and getting my information from magazines on a monthly basis to online and having websites like IGN and videogames.com and GameSpot and all these different websites, that is where I started to get my daily fix of news and updates and eventually trailers. Well, for the younger listeners out there, the internet and the bandwidth and the connection speed was not always to the level that it is nowadays. It's kind of standard nowadays to have just excellent internet connection. Well, back in the late 90s and early 2000s, that was not the case. And because of that, if you wanted to actually see the game trailers of these new games being released, honestly, the best way to do it would be to look at a side-by-side -side comparison, screenshot-by-screenshot, scene-by-scene of the trailer in these magazines or online. Now, when it got to a point, because otherwise you're going to be sitting there waiting for a video, a, a two-minute video of a trailer to buffer, and you're going to end up spending 15 minutes to watch this one two-minute trailer, which I did spend my fair share of time doing just that. But until it got to a point, and I would say the mid-early 2000s, where G4, and some of you may or may not remember that gaming channel on TV, all about games is what it was supposed to start out and did start out as, but very quickly evolved into something else and then was canceled and then it was brought back here recently and just massively failed again. But either way, G4 was kind of a, a big deal back then as well. And it was pretty popular at the time. So what ended up happening is E3 started being broadcast live on G4 for a few years. And every year, Adam Sessler and Olivia Munn and a few others they would be there to kind of be our gateway into the actual show floor of E3. And if you really don't know what E3 is, I mean, when I say show floor, back in the day, it used to be this just massive gathering of not just gaming journalists, but also companies from around the world that were in the video game industry. And at a certain point, just kind of off and on back and forth, you would have that public presence where people just like us, us gamers, just right off the street, you could purchase tickets and go to E3 and participate. And a big deal for a lot of the people there was to be able to play early access demos to a lot of the biggest games that were coming either later that year or the following year or so on and so forth. It was a way to gain access to those games. Because again, back then, the internet and gaming in general on console was not what it is today, where you had the option to play demos or to download things like that on your console. So to be able to do this, you physically had to be somewhere to actually interact with the game and play a demo. And E3 was the place to be for all the biggest games and the newest demos and the earliest access to them. 
So you had the show floor, which every year it was like a third-party publisher such as Ubisoft or Rare or whoever the case may be, as well as obviously top dogs like Nintendo, Sony, and Microsoft. They would all try to outdo each other with displays and floor presentations and different ways to immerse people and get them excited. And, you know, there used to be a thing that back in the day was called booth babes (laughs) is what they were used to be called in the video game uh, realm of uh, terminology here. And, you know, it's very sexist looking back at it in today's point of view. But back then, that's what it was. It was booth babes. It was women who were dressed up and styled and themed around the games that they were there to help promote. And they would be there to kind of wink at you or wave at you or kind of draw your attention towards a developer or publisher's specific game. And they were a a big portion or a part of what E3 was during that time in the late 90s and early 2000s. Thankfully, we kind of got away from that sexist aspect of things and moved on to really just kind of focusing on the games and, and the man, the announcements, the uh, unveils of brand new games we had no idea were coming, the consoles, release date announcements, all kinds of just amazing things. You know, there was also some things that frustrated me about E3 back in the day, like behind closed doors, uh, unveilings of certain games, or there was maybe the newest Final Fantasy. It was there at E3, but it was only shown to certain publishers and developers behind closed doors, and some journalists were able to see it, but we're, we're unable to actually share that with the public right now. It's like, oh, come on, man, like, that's a tease. So there were things like that, of course, that were not deal-breaking for me, but it, it was still like, oh, man, come on, I hate behind closed doors unveils or you know, showing off of what the game is going to be doing, if it was something I was interested in, of course. But when you look at what G4 did and bringing the gamer into the world of E3, and this is a multi-day event. Usually it ran and started on Sunday with some kind of press conference. Typically Microsoft and or Sony would kick things off on that Sunday with their respective press conferences. And then you would go into Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And, you know, usually that first day of the week would be somebody like EA, Ubisoft, those bigger third-party publishers, they would do their presentations. And then the rest of the week would kind of just be focused on either indie or smaller developers pushing their games or really just kind of trailer reveals and gameplay synopses where different people or journalists would kind of communicate what their experiences were with certain games that were on the show floor. It was really, though... Looking at that, it was all about those first two days of E3. That's when the biggest news usually came out of the show. But it was awesome for the few years that it did happen where we as gamers got to go get into E3 without having to physically be there by watching it live on G4. And for those few years that it was on G4, me and some of my best friends at the time that I used to work with and grow up with, they actually would come over to my house and we would make an event of it. We'd order out food or we'd have drinks and we'd just be all right there gathered around the TV in my living room and watch E3 and wait for the biggest trailers and biggest announcements and just kind of enjoy gaming in general and just kind of celebrate gaming. Well, as time would continue to go on and we got into the 2010s, you know, G4 went away and then there were obviously live streams that you could do at a certain point online, whether it was via YouTube or a certain, whether it's Xbox or Sony's uh, channels, you could see certain things on there. It, It very quickly became less about 
the actual show floor presence and more about just showing off trailers and release dates and unveils. And the more that it became about that, you got to a point where ultimately Sony pulled out of the trade show. And that was a big deal when it happened because Sony obviously is arguably the top dog in the gaming industry. Sure, Nintendo has its moments where every other generation or so it seems they are the number one hardware seller. But I would say consistently overall, PlayStation has been kind of like the dominant gaming feature of E3 and just gaming in general. Xbox is always right there in the mix as well. But when Sony backed out and pulled out of E3 and said they weren't coming back and they were going to do their own thing, it was like, what? Are you serious? What is? What are they thinking? Well, Xbox and Nintendo at the time continued to stay in the E3 game and continued to do their shows respectively and have a presence on the show floor. And Sony ended up doing their own presentation, which ended up being very successful for them. And honestly, I enjoyed it as well. It, it made sense in a way from a business standpoint. You know, it, it costs less money. You probably don't have to pay vendors or whoever to put your product and promote everything there at the show floor. You can just kind of do it wherever you want. And it's 100% focused around you at a different date. You don't have to share the time and space with other publishers and console manufacturers. So I get it from that standpoint. But eventually, one by one, as we know up to this point, publishers and most recently Xbox, Ubisoft, all the final big dogs that were left eventually migrated away from E3. Now, obviously, COVID-19 happened a few years ago. And with that, there was a cancellation of all mass public gatherings for a long time. And at least for those first two years during that COVID hype or era, that is the main reason why we didn't get an E3. But during that time frame, it allowed for Xbox and Ubisoft and these other companies to do their own thing and to kind of honestly experience it, in my opinion, to be like, oh, wow, uh, we actually kind of like doing this. <laughs> we almost preferred doing this as opposed to tying together to a, a, somebody else's specified date of when they want us to do things, you know, i.e. E3. So unfortunately, we are at a point now where, as I'm sure most, if not all of you listeners out there know, there is no more E3. Again, it has been killed. Again, it is officially dead. And it really is kind of sad for me because it was such a big deal for such a long time. And I have so many fond memories as I've just kind of gone through those decades with you of some of those key memories coming from just specifically E3. And it just, it, it sucks, you know, to see something that you had loved or, or was, you know, were passionate about at a certain time disappear and, and no longer be relevant is the best way to put it. But I am very thankful that we still do have E3 or, or a form of E3 in the way that Sony and Microsoft and Nintendo and Ubisoft and all the different publishers kind of still do their E3 quote-unquote presentations. They just kind of do it on their own schedule and their own way. And as long as those things continue to happen, like Sony's State of Play and their right, just in general press conferences, and same thing with Microsoft and Xbox and Ubisoft, as long as they still keep doing those kinds of event showings, I'm okay with it. I, I will be okay and accepting of the fact that E3 as it was no longer exists. But it will never take away the memories 
and the good times I had with friends and the excitement that I got building up to that time of year, usually June every year. It was always like, man, E3 is coming up in June. I can't wait to see what they show off at E3. So rest in peace, E3. You were around for 20, so, 20 or so years with me in my gaming career. I loved you for it, and I'll miss you, but you will live on in your own way through these different events and conferences and specials that Sony, Microsoft, Nintendo decide to continue to do in the forthcoming future. So that's this week's Catch of the Week. Now, let's go open up my captain's log and see what games I've been playing. Gamers, I am super stoked this week to actually be talking to you in detail about some of the things that I've done in my playtime with Resident Evil 4 this past week. So if you listen to last week's episode, you'll know that I had put about 15 hours into the game at the point of that recording. Well, since then, I have dropped roughly another 14 hours, so almost doubling my time since I last spoke with you. And I, just to put it in perspective, that's a total of 28 uh, hours and 47 minutes that I've total put into the game. And I am on chapter 12, the very beginning of chapter 12. I've just completed chapter 11, saved it, and that is where my play session ended, the last play session before this recording. And man, there is just a ton of exciting things to share with you listeners this week. And I'm just going to start and jump right into it. So where I started out in this current discussion play session, I'll say, is pretty much right before you rescue Ashley. So if you know anything about this game, the game's story, it's been around for almost 20 years now, right? So ultimately, I'm sure most of you listeners out there know, if you haven't already played the game, that Ashley Graham, which is the president's daughter who Leon is actually sent to this location to help rescue, she is going to be a companion for a, a good portion of your playtime in the game once you find her and rescue her from that point on. So at the point that I start this discussion with you, I am basically just about to rescue her. So I go through the process. Let's just say I rescue her from the church where she's being held and we have to escape at this point and get through the villagers that are just swarming because they know there's essentially this hive mind and Lord Sadler is essentially controlling the villagers through the Las Plagas and in this hive mind kind of way. So he knows he is connected to Ashley and knows that she is being rescued by Leon and, and essentially sends this a uh, group of villagers to try to stop Leon and keep Ashley held hostage. Well, obviously that does not go well for the villagers as me and Ashley do ultimately make our way past the cemetery, past the church and back into the town square where the game kind of started in a way. Well, we make our way through the town square and kind of start going to a forward progression to try to get and meet up with this new character named Luis. Now, Luis is an awesome character. He's not new to the remake. He was in the original game, and I really enjoyed his character in that original, and it is no different in this game. I think the voice actor plays him perfectly, and man, there is just a, a lot to like about his character. He's there for not only comedic relief, but I also feel like he's just... he's. Interesting, because Leon obviously doesn't trust him right out the gate. He knows that Luis used to work for Umbrella, and we all know the details and the secrets and the <laughs> reason why Leon would not trust anybody who 
has supposedly uh, left and previously used to work for Umbrella. So without going into details, I don't want to spoil anything for anybody story-wise, but let's just say they meet up and, man, there is this... Uh, there's a pretty intense, crazy situation where you're in this house and uh, just a massive horde of villagers come to this house and try to basically take you and Luis apart. And, you know, going into this game, that was one of the highlights for me of the original. And I thought that maybe Capcom had, for some reason, eliminated that sequence from this remake because it had not happened yet. In my mind, it happened much earlier, more... Uh, kind of either before or right when you get to the town square is when I thought this segment happened. Well, obviously I was wrong about that, but let me tell you, I mean, this is one of the key things that was a highlight of Resident Evil 4 before it released back in the day. The fact that you could push bookcases in front of doors or windows to block villagers from coming in. You could put wooden panels up on the windows to slow their entry into the house and things like that. So that is essentially what you have to do. And you have two floors to deal with. And then on the second floor, obviously, they have ladders outside. They're trying to prop up against the house and climb in through the windows. And you can push the ladders down. And I mean, there's all these different things going on. And it gets pretty insanely intense uh, to a point towards the end there. But you really, it's all about just surviving and... Man, for me at least, it was about kind of alternating between going upstairs and downstairs and back and forth. And for me at least, that worked. Uh, it kind of helped crowd control. You know, they they just kind of blindly follow you for the most part, except for the ones that are interacting with Luis. And uh, also, it's kind of cool that Luis throws you ammo. You know, there's different points in the battle where you can press on PlayStation, you can click in the uh, analog stick, and he'll actually throw you ammo. So that's actually pretty cool. It was a, a really fun, but also it could be a little, you know, frustrating there a couple times. Took a couple tries for me to get past that sequence, but it, it was still enjoyable. To It's one of those things where gaming is about challenge, right? You, you don't want every game to be Elden Ring or Dark Souls challenge level, but you do kind of go into a video game, at least in my personal opinion, to get some kind of a challenge out of it and feel accomplished when you defeat or beat that challenge. So it was no different here. A little frustration to get past it because it was kind of hectic there at certain spots, but get past that. And ultimately, I, I get past the village map. So the game is kind of divided, it looks like, into three different maps. There is the village map, which is pretty massive, or at least I thought was pretty massive. And then we go to next is the castle map. Now, I remember very clearly a lot of the castle as well. I remember Salazar, who was the little person who is is very uh, is a very interesting character. Let me just say that, and he shows up as you obviously enter into this new area and environment. And I got to tell you, gamers, the environment of the castle. You know, you you might if you're like me, you might would think that the castle is just going to be just that, a castle. Maybe some surrounding areas and all that, but you know, you don't really or at least I wasn't expecting it to be as massive as it has been. And let me just tell you gamers, I did not remember as much about this game as I thought I did because as I'm playing through this remake, I'm like, "Man, is this something new? And then I look up online and it's like, no, that was in the original. And what's crazy to me is, as I stated last week, I've played through this game essentially twice between the Wii and the GameCube. So I, I get it. You know, I'm getting older. It's been, you know, almost two decades since I've played the game. So 
I kind of give myself a little bit of credit there, but I'm also, I'll be honest, I am actually quite happy that I did not remember most of this stuff because I'm experiencing it. It's like I'm experiencing it for the first time, at least in my mind, because I don't remember it. So it's a lot of fun. And as you're exploring the castle, I just got to say, I mean, there, man, it is just such an amazing environment to explore. It's like I talked about last week as well. I love the Metroidvania style of gameplay. You get into a massive area like this huge castle, and there are so many different floors and rooms and different areas that you can go into, but you don't have access to everything all at once from the get-go. You have to find, in this case, you go into the castle, and in the main hall, there is a statue that's missing three heads. And there are three different sections of the castle that you have to go into and explore and do certain puzzles or combat encounters and be successful in those in order to be rewarded with one of those heads. And then you come back to the statue and you place the head, obviously, but so on and so forth. My point being, I love the fact that everything is segmented and separated and paced out in such a way that it is. And I honestly, it's just been kind of euphoric for me, the experience that I've had going through this castle, because I am still making my way through the castle map. Now, that's not to say that there is 100% of all this time and exploration has just been the castle. There is a lot of other locations, we'll say, that you are going to end up going to as you explore and go from left to right on that castle map. I... I it is just so amazing what Capcom has done because I don't remember this content or this amount of content being in that original game. So as I'm going through and just, I love the design of the castle. The visuals of it are just beautiful. There's some morbid, just terrifying, honestly, some of these paintings and portraits that are on the wall. It's like, oh my God, like one of them has uh, the person in the painting holding somebody else's screaming head. Uh, it's just it's pretty uh, dark, twisted stuff. And as you go through, you obviously find notes that are left around or journal entries that really kind of speaks to the history of the family that built this castle and that kind of ruled over this area where the village is and the castle and its surrounding areas. It's just really, to me, from a lore standpoint, that I, you know, and I love lore. In every game, I love the lore. I love getting that backstory. And I mean, this game has just been supplying it and, and plentiful bounty, and I am eating it up every time I come to, whether it's, like I said, a journal entry or just a note left from someone. It's been really interesting stuff. And my good friend Logan Phoenix over at Graveyard Gamer on the Graveyard Gamer podcast, check him out on Spotify or many other podcast platforms. Great podcast. Trust me, if you like me, you'll like him. He was talking in his episode about the fact that there's ties to the environment and things that you experience based on some of the notes that you read. Like, for instance, the giant that you fight in the quarry. Earlier in the game, you'll be in a house that's talking about, man, you know, the people from the church and the castle are still demanding more and more cattle. What are they demanding this cattle for? And then you end up finding out later, oh, there was a journal entry with the giant, and the giant was actually eating the cattle. So that's why the church people and the castle folk were looking for all this more, more and more cattle. It's, well, we're not satiating the giant. So regardless, I absolutely love the story and the lore and the backstory that is being given to you as you explore this castle. I love the visuals of it, the design of it, the layout. The map is done so expertly in this game. I love 
the end game map. It is so helpful for you as the player. It is just the quality of life things that are just massive. And I'm so spoiled. I'm going to leave this game spoiled and expect this kind of map when I go to play other games. And it's just not going to happen because, you know, every game, sure, there are some things that every game has, but I guarantee you most games that I play after this, it's not going to be as detailed and as thorough as this. I love the fact they show locked doors, which most maps do, but there's that. But then the thing is dropped items from enemies I may have missed or treasures in an area if I've bought that uh, the secret to that to, for it to show up on my map. I mean, there's just all kinds of different things, the different levels. Oh, man, uh, whether it's above ground, ground level, below ground, there is just so much depth and there for you to absorb. It's amazing. And speaking of underground... I did end up in an underground lab at one point in my play session this past week. And I got to tell you, I did not remember that either. <laughs> but there is a an enemy that's called a Verdugo. And man, if that was not making me think of a necromorph from the Alien movie franchise. And I guarantee you that's where the inspiration came from. And I loved it. I got to tell you, gamers. I was pretty terrified in that moment. I ain't gonna lie. And I said it last week, and I'm telling you again, this game is a lot more terrifying and scary than I gave it credit for all these years. I remembered it more in my head of like, yeah, there might be some intense moments here or there, but it was more action-y than scary. Nah. I mean, I've been proven wrong left and right in my memory of this game. It is so amazing. And I have just grown to love this game more than I ever have, to be honest with you. I've always really enjoyed the game, but man, I have just... I can't tell you enough how much of a new appreciation I have for this game, its story, its characters. Ooh, I am just, I am loving it. To top off what I ended my play session with this week was some adventuring with Luis. Leon and Luis making their way through. And I got to tell you, it was extremely fun. Sure, there are some moments here or there with different enemies. There is even a boss fight with, uh, we'll just say there was two of the certain creature enemy type that me and Luis had to take down. So as not to do too many spoilers here, but let me just say it was a lot of fun. It was a really fun boss fight. And just in general, I mean, Luis, his quips, his comments, and honestly, a little bit of introspectiveness you get when you're walking around with him and just kind of getting to know and understand why he left Umbrella, why Leon should trust him. There's just a lot of good stuff there. And to top it all off, you can't get any better than an Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom minecart sequence. So if you haven't seen the movie or if you're not a kid of the 80s, you don't know what I'm talking about. There is a scene in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom where Indy and uh, Short Round and the other female protagonist of the movie, I mean, they are riding a minecart through the mines in this mountain area and there's all kinds of stuff going on, enemies coming at them in other carts. That's what you can expect from Resident Evil 4 with Leon and Luis at a certain point in the game. And it is so fun. Lots of big, massive gaps to do uh, and clear and jumps. You have to steer the cart and make sure it doesn't tip over. You got to watch out for enemies on other carts shooting flaming crossbow bolts at you. I mean, it's just a massive... You got to control the track at certain points and make sure... There's just so many different cool things. It was an absolutely 
pure fun experience, and I loved it. Now, I, I added a little bit of stress to myself in this sequence because there is a trophy for completing the two minecart sequences without the minecart you're in taking any damage. And it did take a few reloads in each cart sequence, but I am very happy to say that I was successful in being able to do this. So if you like trophies, if you're trying to go for the platinum or just in general want the pride and, and the self-pride or bragging rights to be like, ha, I got through those sequences without taking any damage, it's not too crazy. It might just take you a few reloads and you'll be good to go. Now, in addition to this, there's obviously the upgrading. I did a ton of upgrading with my weapons, my attache case, and I got to tell you, I did not know it could be addictive, as addictive as it is, to bejewel different pieces of treasure <laughs> because I didn't really speak to that in my last episode, but you can find different pieces of treasure like crowns or lanterns and different things like that that allow you to put the different rubies and emeralds and sapphires that you find throughout the game world. You can inlay those rubies and sapphires and whatnot into the bigger treasures to multiply your earnings when you go to sell that treasure to the merchant. And I love it. I love the little spreadsheet they give you that shows you the different multipliers and how you can maximize each individual treasure by using the correct multipliers based on what kind of gemstones that you have at the time. I just think it's very addictive and I absolutely love it. And I just got to say one last thing. In addition to all of this, I love the shooting range. I, in the past, you know, I've been kind of like, okay, yeah, shooting range. Didn't really pay no extra mind to it, but for whatever reason... I have thoroughly enjoyed my time and had a ton of fun in all nine of the different types of styles, I guess you can go for, because they have it split up by weapon type and different combinations of the boards that you can shoot and things like that. It's really fun. And it also is not just about the shooting range itself, but you earn tokens based on your score. And you can then turn around and use those tokens to unlock attachments for your attache case, which I love the ones I have right now. If you have a large bass that you can, uh, FYI, there's bodies of water, look for fish because they are good to kill and keep in your inventory as an alternative healing method. They work great. One of the attachments I got new was uh, the large bass 100% refills your health. So I have that. I have 30% off weapon upgrades. I have all kinds of different things. So these attachments are really, really cool and just add to the reason or incentive of the shooting range. But out of all of that, there is one sequence that I did not talk about that I'm going to share with you next in my highlight of the week. Gamers, you may be asking yourselves, after all of that amazingness that you just talked about, how can there be anything else that tops any of those things? Well, believe it or not, there is one sequence that I went through in my play sessions this past week that just really had me elated. I was just in love with what was happening. And part of it is because of how scary it was. And I told you before, this game was not one that I would have considered before this as one of the more scarier Resident Evil games, but man, if it has not resonated on a different level for me when it comes to horror, <laughs> this go around. So the sequence that I'm talking about, and I'll, again, I'll try to stay spoiler free as best I can here, but let's just say that in this sequence that I am saying is my highlight of the week, you are without weapons. There's no weapons. The only thing you have is a lantern with a blue flame. 
and most of the areas that you're going to be going through in this shorter sequence are in complete darkness. So not only initially at least are you going through these areas that Capcom does a good job of placing certain taxidermy and whatnot in your way <laughs> to pop up at certain points when the light hits it. But So not only are you going through and there's just the unknown and the unsettling atmosphere and the pitch blackness of the dark, but you, you just don't know what to expect. You get to a certain point and then you're trying to explore and next thing you know, there is essentially a new enemy type that comes alive and I don't want to spoil it for anybody. So I'll just say there's a certain enemy type that is only stopped and frozen for a few seconds by using the blue light. And the areas that you go and explore utilizing this blue light lantern and are trying to avoid these enemies, there's also treasures or different puzzles that you have to try to figure out along the way. And there's different notes and, and things of that nature with lore, backstory. So there's a lot of stuff wrapped up here in this package. But for me, it was the pure horror aspect of it that I loved. And I just really enjoyed what Capcom did with the gameplay here. Just strip the player of all weapons. You have no defense except for either to run and get away or use this blue light lantern. And I loved it. Absolutely loved it. And it was my highlight of the week. Now let's go check out an accessory review and find out my thoughts on Xbox's latest controller, the Velocity Green Xbox Core Controller. Accessory Review Gamers, every so often I do end up picking up a new controller because obviously I am the self-professed controller freak. So a lot of times when there's a new design or a color that comes out, whether it's for PlayStation or Xbox, I kind of can't help myself. And just this past month in March, there was a brand new color released for the Xbox Series line of controllers, and that was the Velocity Green controller. Now, I've already got way too many controllers as it is for the Xbox, but again, to me, it's kind of like a collection that I kind of justify this with, and I do self-profess to be the controller freak. So, with all that validation and justification aside, I want to tell you, do I think it's an item that you should definitely purchase? So the way I do my ratings here on an accessory review, essentially the best it can get is a must buy. No matter what, hands down, you got to buy it. Second behind that would be a only if you're a collector or only if you're truly about that color or that source material that the controller theme may be based on. And then third and finally is a pass. Just don't even worry about it. You know, keep it moving. See what the next one is going to be, next design or next color. So when it comes to the Velocity Green controller, this is the exact same controller that you're going to get in any other core Xbox Series controller, meaning there's no rubberized grips. There's no shifting as their shift line of controllers has begun to do between the Aqua Shift, Lunar Shift, and most recently, Stellar Shift controllers. So this is just your basic Xbox Series controller, which is still a great controller. So you don't have any of those extra features. It's really here just all about the color green. And I love the fact that the name of the controller is Velocity Green, because in my opinion, it kind of harkens to the Velocity chip technology with inside the Xbox. So I like that connection to the Xbox itself. And then the green itself is a shade that I personally love. I'm glad they didn't go too crazy neon green with it, but I do think it fits perfectly for the Xbox brand. And it's just a nice shade. So you have the overall top face of the controller is that green 
on the bottom underneath is white. And then you have the face buttons, the A, B, X, and Y buttons. Those are, instead of being the typical red, yellow, blue, and green color, they're actually all the same velocity green color. So they match the controller face. So overall, purely aesthetics is what this is really all about. Do you like the color green enough to get this controller? And is it necessary? Do you have to go run out and purchase it? On this one, I'm going to give it a rating of only if you're a collector. If you need a controller or if you love the color green or if you're like me and you're pretty much just trying to keep up with every new color that Xbox releases and their series controller line, then yeah, definitely pick it up. But if it's really just, you know, you're waiting for something more involved, like something in the Stellar line, or even something, say, if they decide to come out with a Jedi Survivor controller in the future, then I would say you could probably hold off right now. So that's what I got this week as far as my accessory review. Now let's move on and see what I have next in my buried treasure gaming chest of tips for you. Gamers, this week for my tip, I wanted to share something with you that I experienced myself and try to help you gamers avoid the same situation that I inadvertently put myself in. So in the course of the game, there are different collectibles called the Clockwork Castellanos, which are basically a little wooden wind-up toys that are collectibles one in each chapter of the game. So 16 total that you have to find. And they can be, some of them, in obscure places, others are right in front of your face. But the best way to track these things down, at least in my experience, was to listen out for their sound. There is a distinct sound of kind of like the little gears and motor running in the background. It keeps them kind of moving. They have this movement that they do. So if you listen out for that sound, that is typically 99.9% .9 of the time how I locate them and I feel the easiest way to listen and locate and use that spatial audio and that directional sound to try to pinpoint exactly where they are. And they could be up, down, left, right. Look everywhere when you hear that distinctive sound. And you'll know what I'm talking about when once you collect your first one and you've been near it and you know what that sound is. Now, I will say the reason why this is a tip is ultimately in chapter six, there is going to be the Castellanos that you want to shoot, ultimately, or this one is actually one that you are able to get close enough to to use your knife to swipe at it and destroy it however you want to see fit to get the job done, either or in this specific Castellanos. Now, the issue that I had was I didn't realize, <laughs> I was not thinking, until I got to Chapter 7 and took out that Clockwork Castellanos and the game popped up and said I had gotten 6 out of 16. And I'm like, wait a minute. This should say 7 because there's one in every chapter. This is chapter 7. I should have just unlocked or captured, so to speak, number 7. So what happened? So I ended up looking up online a strategy or a collectibles walkthrough of where they all were and realized that, oh, crap, I missed one in chapter 6. So the reason why I missed it is because... As I stated, the sound is really the distinctive thing that helps you find where these things are at. And the location that it's in, in Chapter 6, is basically hard to see and to hear because there's a lot going on. Now, there is an area at the end of Chapter 6 known as the Checkpoint. And right before you get to that area, there is essentially a, 
a path, uh, kind of a straight path that you have to take to get to this checkpoint area. During that path, at the end of it, you're going to come into an area where there is kind of a bonfire at one corner of that map in that area. And when you get into that area where you see the bonfire, right there sitting on the ledge next to the bonfire is the Castellanos. But because it's kind of obscured by the fire and just the colors and the area of the environment that it's in, and because there are enemies and the fire crackling and everything else going on, I didn't hear it. And from what I understand online, other people are not hearing it as well or even seeing it because it kind of blends in with those colors. So just an early FYI, if you haven't gotten to chapter six yet, or if you have passed through chapter six and realized, wait a minute, I, I missed one. How did I miss that? Where was that? That is where that Clockwork Castellanos is because there is a trophy. If you're like me and you do platinum pursuits or you're a trophy hunter and you want to get every trophy you can, there is a silver trophy for collecting all Clockwork Castellanos in the game. And I did not want to screw that up. So as I finally was able to figure out how to go back and get the credits for the Castellanos, the other part of my tip here is, hey, I missed it, but there's no chapter select. There's no new game plus, so to speak, in the sense that you can't miss things and rely on those options after you beat the game. So in this sense, it's always good to have backup save files. I utilize all the save files that are given to me by the developer in a game and every game that I play because of potential scenarios like this happening. So what I was fortunate to do was to go back to one of my later saves for chapter six, and it was right before the checkpoint area. So I was able to load up that save and the game actually saves within the game system under the challenge option, which you can look up in the pause menu. And that's the way you can kind of track it from that perspective. If you've been given credit for or how many you have of a certain quantity of collectible, you can go in there in that challenge option under the pause menu and check it out. But bottom line, the system and the game internally tracks and still counts and gives you credit for these collectibles, even if you play it out of order. So for me, I had already gotten about a third of the way through chapter seven when I realized the Castellanos was missed in chapter six, but I was able to still load up my file from chapter six, go right to that location, pop the Castellanos, and guess what? It tracked and said seven out of 16. Double checked by reloading my save file to go to back to chapter seven, a third of the way through, and it still showed under the challenges option in the pause menu, seven out of 16. So to avoid all of that, I am here to let you guys know and fill you in on those tips. Now, let's go check out this week's Captain's Decree. Gamers, this week on my Captain's Decree, since we were looking back at what was the Electronic Entertainment Expo in E3, I kind of wanted to pose a question out there. Do I think that E3 will ever at all, in any capacity, try to return again? And I thought about it for a while, and ultimately, I came to the conclusion that I personally feel the answer is no. I really think that this final time, or that this is the final time, this most recent attempt to get E3 back and going this summer, being that it was a failed attempt, I think it was the last straw. I think it was enough for anybody, any outside company who may be considering or was considering funding or supporting E3 coming back in, in any kind of way, 
I feel that at this point, anybody with that thought process would be turned away because it's one thing to have one massive publisher and console manufacturer and Sony to kind of do their own side thing, but everybody else is still showing up to the party. Microsoft, Nintendo, Ubisoft, EA, all the big dogs in the industry. Just one guy, one gal not attending the party. Okay, all right. But when you have all of the top dogs that decide to leave the party, and it's very public, and I think that it just says a lot, to be honest. And I really do go back to what I said earlier. I think that a lot of it has to do with companies and publishers holding their own conferences on their own schedules with their own funding and support and stages and locations and whatever. All the decisions are made through them from them. They don't have to go through any kind of other outside parties. And I think that it really just boils down to that. So was it for the better of the game industry that we no longer have, or I believe that we will no longer have an E3 Or does it really affect the game industry at all? I don't honestly think it affects the game industry negatively or positively. I would say that if Xbox and Sony and Nintendo, if all these different publishers did not continue to do their own individual showcase events throughout the course of a year, I think then it may very well affect the industry in a certain kind of way because other than those events, what do we have as gamers to look forward to in the form of this massive big event? Honestly, besides the Game Awards. At this point, I feel like the Game Awards in its own way has kind of become a a new version of E3 in the sense that we, sure, a lot of us may still also, myself included, look forward to the award winners and seeing different acceptance speeches and things like that. Christopher Judge this past year, obviously insane in a good way. But I think the main reason that most of us really tune in or follow up on any kind of information coming from the Game Awards, it's all about the reveals, the trailers. And so I think that that at its heart is still what E3 was about. And so in its own way, spiritually, it's kind of carrying on that torch that E3 bared and held and carried for so many years and decades from the 90s into the early 2000s and even in the mid-2000s. But I think that gaming will continue to thrive and have very exciting, fun showcase events, in addition to things like the Game Awards, Jeff Keighley's Summer of Gaming, all these different kinds of things that still happen throughout the course of a given year. So I think we'll be fine as gamers, but at the end of the day, E3, in my personal opinion, for me, will be sorely missed. That'll do it for this week's episode. I hope you've enjoyed your time aboard the SS Gamer. You can join its crew by searching for Hulking Yoda on the Xbox, PlayStation, and Nintendo Switch networks. Reach out to me via email at lostatseagaming365 at gmail.com, as well as find me on social media on Instagram at lostatseagaming and on Twitter at lostatseagamin, the number one. Thank you for listening, and until the sea says otherwise, we'll keep sailing. <laughs>